So I invite you to take uh, your Bible and turn with me once again to the Gospel of Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. You'll remember that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. His great Galilean ministry has come to an end. And he's marching towards Jerusalem, knowing that he's going there to lay down his life. Um, Along the way, he is teaching uh, many important things, uh, lessons to the crowds and disciples. He's been teaching and preaching about uh, matters of uh, life and death, matters that relate to everyday life. And the issue before us in Luke chapter 16 is one of those matters that relates to everyday life, the issue of money and possessions and what we do with them. Um, God or possessions is the question that this passage asks of us. Uh, Before we read it, though, let's pray and ask for the Lord's help. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would enable us to understand Um, this parable of the Lord Jesus and all that Jesus is saying to us and by your Holy Spirit apply this word to our hearts that we might serve you with with all that we have and all that we are. For Jesus' sake we ask it. Amen. Uh, Luke 16 beginning in verse 1. Let's hear God's word. He, that is Jesus, also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So, uh, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. 
In this parable, we're introduced to two main characters, a rich man and his manager. Some translations have steward instead of manager. A, a, A steward is someone charged with looking after, tending to, caring for someone else's stuff, someone who's given authority over the, the possessions of another. And, and uh, so this man had been serving this rich man as the manager of his, of his assets. Uh, but this manager was accused of mismanagement. Actually, the charge that is brought against him is that he was wasting the, uh, the wealth, the goods of, um, of his boss. That's an interesting word because th- that, that word wasted is the same word that we, we saw back in chapter 15 with the, the prodigal son. You remember the prodigal son who demanded his share of the inheritance and then he left town, went into the far country and wasted his inheritance. It's the same word that's being used here. But his boss caught wind of this, so he called him into the office one day and told him to take a seat and said, what's this I hear about you wasting uh, my money? And eventually uh, he he was told, you know what, you're you're done here. Um, you, You can no longer work for me. Pack up your stuff, clean out your desk, here's your pink slip, and before you go you need to turn in the, the, the books for, for the accounts. Now, at this point, the manager knew he had no hope of keeping his job because once the books were balanced, uh, the, the evidence of his being dishonest and stealing from his, uh, his boss would have been um, inevitably brought into the light. And this, you see, it puts, it puts the manager in, in, a, in a, bit of, a bit of a pickle because uh, th- there would be no um, collection of unemployment. There were no severance packages in those days. And we get a little bit of insight as he's trying to think through, okay, what am I going to do then? We get a little bit of insight into his reasoning uh, beginning in verse 3 as he starts to ponder the possibilities. What, what about manual labor? And he immediately decides, no, that, that's not for me. You know, going from a desk job to picking up a shovel and working hard all day, there's no way I'm going to do that. What about, what about begging? Uh, you know, begging was actually a very common thing in Jesus' day, even though there were provisions in the Mosaic law for the care of the poor and the needy, they often slipped through the cracks. But this man says, no, I will not um, I will not go to that point. Why? He says, I'm ashamed. Actually, I think he's, he's really saying, I'm, I'm too proud to do that. So what's he going to do? He has an aha moment in, in verse 4. He says, I've decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. All right, so he's got, he's got his own plan all worked out in his head. And his plan is to take the bills of his master's debtors and reduce them. So before his termination becomes public knowledge, before it's official, remember his his master said, before you you get out of here, you need to turn in the books of of the accounts. Before all of that takes place, he has this brief period of time. So he calls in his master's debtors and, and he wrote off some of their debts. 
He couldn't write them off entirely, but he, he reduced them enough to save them a, a considerable sum of money. So he, so he summons the, his master's debtors. You know, we don't know how many of them there were. Luke gives us the impression that there were, there were, were many, and he's just uh, recounting for us two of the significant debtors. Um, and the first one is in verse 5. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, the first one comes in. And he asks him, how much do you owe my master? And he replied, a hundred measures of oil. We're talking here about olive oil. Um, And the amount we're talking about is fairly substantial. We're we're thinking here about nearly approximately a thousand gallons of oil. uh, Which, uh, at least from what I've read, is approximately worth a thousand denarii, and you remember a single denarii is worth a single day's wages. So we're talking here about, you know, a thousand days wages, roughly three years wages. It's a significant amount of money. And the manager says, okay, today's your day. <laughs> I cut you a deal. It's a, it's a one-time offer. It's, it's only for today. How about you sit down and, and quickly, uh, uh, take care of, of half of the debt, and we'll call it even. Would that interest you? Would you be willing to do that? And of course the response is, absolutely. I, that, that's a deal I can't pass up. Let's get it written down on a legal note. And then the next debtor comes in and he says, well, what do you owe? And he, he tells him, I owe 100 measures of wheat. And he said, okay, I've got a deal for you. Let's cut that down to 80 measures of wheat. Would you, would you be willing to take care of that debt today? And You see, it was a brilliant move on this manager's part. So shrewd, so clever. The the debtors had no reason to suspect that this steward or manager was acting dishonestly. After all, he was the rich man's manager. He was entrusted with the stewarding of the rich man's assets and and goods. And he had the authority to do what he's doing here and and cutting costs. And you can imagine, uh, with a little bit of speculation, uh, some of the things the debtors might have been saying. Wow, I don't don't know what's gotten into you. I don't know why you're cutting me such a break, but thank you. And if there's there's anything I can do for you in the future, you you just let me know. See how clever he reduced their debt and made them his debtors. And you see, in his last act as manager, he made friends using his master's goods. And when he was out of a job, he would then be welcomed into their homes. You know, commentators, they they differ on the nature of this debt reduction how should we understand what the master is, is doing here? Is he, you know, is, he, uh, is he cutting out the commission part that he would have received and allowing these, these debtors to just pay on the principal amount? Or is he eliminating the interest that the, the owner had added on to the principal amount? Because <clears throat> some point to the fact that during Jesus' time, you know, the Mosaic law said, that an Israelite was not allowed to charge interest on a loan with a fellow Israelite. So what some of the the men did is that to get around the law of God, instead of having an interest, they just simply hiked up the principal amount. Is it possible that the manager is just removing that extra amount? Or 
Is he simply reducing the cost at the master's expense? We don't really know for sure, and we don't really need to know for sure to understand the meaning of, of this parable. Is, um, whatever he's doing, though, we can say, at least say this much. He was being dishonest. That's why Jesus calls him the dishonest manager in verse 8. But it's, uh, it's very important for us to, to recognize that uh, he is not commended for his dishonesty. He is commended for his shrewdness, which we'll come back to in just a second. So, so what's the reaction of this rich man? Well, put yourself in his shoes. How would you react if you found out that someone you trusted, someone you hired as manager of your goods, was ripping you off? I, I don't know about you, but I'd be pretty upset. But the fact of the matter is that everything the manager did was legally executed. And there was nothing that this rich man could do to go back and recover his losses. So he's looking at this situation and he sees what his soon-to-be-fired manager has done. And he thinks, you sly fox, you. You really pulled one over me here. He, he, He recognizes how shrewd this manager has been. Now... That shrewdness, it's used, this word for shrewdness, it's used elsewhere in scripture and sometimes translated as as wise, sometimes as prudent, sometimes as sensible. So in what sense was this shrewd manager wise and prudent and sensible? it's, It's this, that he saw what was coming and he took action to prepare for it. It's that, he he saw what was coming. And he took action to prepare for it. And friends, that is the issue that we have to face today. That is um, where this parable is brought home to our hearts. And what I want to do today as we look at this passage is think about three principles that Jesus gives to us following the principle of the dishonest manager. Uh, Here's the first principle. First principle is that disciples use worldly wealth to make eternal friends. Now, that's in verse 9, and we'll come to that in just a second. But jump in at the second part of verse 8. Uh, Jesus says, The sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. What is that about? <laughs> you know, who, who are the sons of this world and who are the sons of the light? The the sons of this world are those who live for this world. The sons of this world are are those who who do not acknowledge God, do not submit their lives to God. They are preoccupied with the details between the day of their birth and the day of their death. They have no concern for the future, no, no concern for God's revelation of himself through his son Jesus Christ. Just a life lived for satisfaction in the here and now. On, on the other hand, the, the sons of light are people who, who by God's grace, living in this world, are nevertheless have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness, the kingdoms of this world, and have been made citizens of the kingdom of God's beloved Son. Uh, the sons of light are those who do acknowledge God and 
and, and who, who recognize him in their daily lives. They, they live in light of eternity. And they know that worldly possessions cannot be kept forever. And so the sons of the world, in just one statement, the sons of the world are those who are not living for God. And the sons of light are those who are seeking to live for God. Followers of Jesus. But here comes the sting. Here comes the challenge. Because did you see what Jesus Says He says that the sons of this world are more shrewd in their dealings with this generation than the sons of light. Now, what's, what's Jesus saying there? I think what he's saying is that for unbelievers, there tends to be more consistency between their goals and how they live. And so if their, their goal is you know, success and prosperity and comfort and wealth, then they work really, really, really hard at achieving those goals. They put all of their time and their energy into achieving it. You can, you can see it in the way they spend their time. You can see it in how they allocate their, their resources, how they use their money, how they make plans for the future. And so what's the problem with the sons of light here? The problem is that there is often a, a disconnect between what they believe and how they live. You see, Jesus is saying that here, here's this dishonest manager who is shrewd. He's wise, prudent, sensible. He sees what's coming and he, he takes action and, and lives in light of what's coming. And uh, Jesus is saying that the sons of this world with their own understanding of, of the world and what life is all about, they are often very consistent with how they live, whereas the sons of light, who believe in eternal life and the second coming of Jesus Christ, very often there's a disconnect between how they employ worldly possessions in light of what they believe about eternity. Think about it with me. Just think this through. If we believe that this is not the best of all possible worlds, but there is a greater world to come. What does that mean for how we live in, in the here and now? If we believe that this existence is, is but a breath in comparison to eternity, then how does that affect our priorities on a daily basis? If, if we believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father but by him, how does that shape how we use our time and our energy and the resources that God has entrusted to us? Do our lives line up with our convictions? Right? Is, there, is there a correspondence between what we profess and how we live? See, I think it's a challenging word for disciples of Jesus here. And and Jesus is drawing this parallel between how the dishonest manager prepared for unemployment and the way his disciples ought to prepare for eternity. Now, he's not teaching us to be dishonest. So let's be absolutely clear about that. You are not allowed to leave today and say, Pastor Jared told me it's okay to be dishonest. That's not what I'm saying. Jesus is teaching us to bring our choices, our way of life, our plans in line with what we believe about the world and about the future. To see what's coming and to live accordingly. And that's why he says what he says in verse 9. And this is the principle that I wanted us to think about. He says, I tell you, 
Make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Let's just unpack that for a minute. Why Jesus describes wealth as unrighteous wealth, I'm not sure, but I'll offer my opinion on it. Of course, we we know that the, the Bible does not teach that wealth is in and of itself inherently evil. It's the love of money that is evil. Perhaps it's a comparison because he's going to talk about true riches, the riches of heaven in a moment. And in comparison to the riches of heaven, worldly possessions are unrighteous wealth. The the unrighteous wealth, wealth is the word mammon, which doesn't simply refer to your your cash. It, It refers more broadly to all of your possessions. So Jesus isn't talking here narrowly about what you have in the bank. He's talking about everything that you have, everything that you, that you possess. And note, Jesus says that your material possessions, your worldly possessions, are going to fail you. He, uh, he doesn't say if they fail. He says when it fails, when your wealth fails. Jesus is always doing this. He's always reminding us that the things of this world are not going to last and that you can't take them with you. That the, you know, the, the dream house that you pined after for years after years and, and, and finally obtained, you, you, you will not be able to take that with you. The, the cars, you can't take them with you. The money that you accrued in your bank account will be emptied and given to others and all of the possessions that you accrued throughout your lifetime will be given to others or auctioned off. And we need to remember that, dear friends. So, so what, what does it mean to make friends who will welcome you into eternal dwellings? Notice again, though, first, before we answer that directly, the dishonest manager made friends with the hope that one day they would welcome him into their homes. And he was thinking about his future. And Jesus is telling his disciples to make friends with their possessions so that they will be welcomed into everlasting glory. And there will be people waiting there one day to receive us. Of course, Jesus is talking about heaven. He's talking about the life to come. Now, Jesus is not saying that we gain access to heaven with how we use our money. Our, our, our access into heaven is through through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from any works that we do, and apart from how we, we use or give our money. So what does it mean to make Jesus, I'm sorry, to make friends who will welcome you into eternal dwellings? What's Jesus talking about there? I think, I think we can answer that question by asking ourselves another set of questions. How many many people will be in heaven because of your giving and service? How, How many people are going to be in heaven because of the ministry of this congregation? How many people are going to be in heaven because of the ministries and mission works that that you support? How many people are going to be in heaven one day and and be able to come up to 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 you and, and, and say, 
I'm so thankful that I came to, to Trinity on that Sunday and I, and I heard the gospel and, and God turned the lights on and worked life into my, my dead heart and I came to believe in Jesus Christ. Thank you for supporting that. Thank you for making that possible. Or maybe there's someone in Germany or, or Thailand or Africa who has heard the gospel and is being discipled. By, uh, by a Christian, and that is being made possible in part because of the giving and the support of folks here at Trinity Presbyterian Church. Or, or think about Christianity Explored, which I talked about during the announcement time, when, when Lord willing down the road, someone opens up their home and we have a home Bible study taking people through the Gospel of Mark. Wouldn't it, wouldn't it be wonderful to see someone come to faith in Jesus Christ and then one day in heaven, Hear them say, thank you. Thank you for participating in that work. Thank you for using whatever, whatever resources, whatever possessions you had to support the work of the gospel. Thank you for opening up your home to me. Thank you for hosting a Bible study. You see, making friends. This is what Jesus is talking about. Who knows how God may use the possessions of his people. All the glory goes to God, of course, but someone may greet you one day and say, thank you for supporting that ministry. Thank you, thank you for sending that missionary. Thank you for hosting that Bible study. Thank you for witnessing to that person and leading that person to Jesus. And then they led me to Jesus. Thank you for doing that. See, these are the friends who will welcome us one day. And so Jesus is teaching us Yes, on the one hand, you know, worldly wealth fails. It will not last. You cannot hang on to it. So why not use it for eternal purposes while you've got it? But, you know, that teaching, the teaching of Jesus here, it, it cuts against, I think, every impulse we have in a consumer culture. Because I think it actually, in our culture, it works the other way around. That if, if we come to realize that life is short, we end up wanting to spend more on ourselves, not less. I was reminded of a, of a Calvin and Hobbes comic this, this week that I'll, I'll share with you. Calvin and Hobbes, they made a, they made a snowman together. And, and uh, Hobbes remarks to Calvin that the, the snowman doesn't look very happy. And Calvin says that's because he's not. He knows he knows that uh, <clears throat> in, a, in a little short while that he's going to melt and he feels as though his existence is meaningless. And, and Hobbes says to Calvin, I wonder if his existence is as meaningless as he thinks. And uh, Calvin says, nope, he's going, to, he's going to go buy himself a big screen TV in just a few moments. <laughs> you see, that's, that's actually the way people live, though. They live for the moment, not, not eternity. And when from time to time... God presses in upon them the sense of the vanity and the brevity and the meaninglessness of life lived for the here and now. Their response to that is to go out and buy themselves things so that they make themselves feel better. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, please notice, this is teaching for Jesus' disciples. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you're considering the truth claims of the Christian faith, Please don't hear this as a message calling you to, you know, empty your wallet in the offering plate today. This is Jesus' instruction to his followers. And he's saying, make a better investment with your possessions. Use the worldly wealth God has given to you 
to make friends that will last forever. See, practically, what does that mean? I think it's, you know, it's pretty simple. Support the work of your church, fund mercy ministry, give to the, to the work of missions, use whatever earthly possessions God has given to you for the work and the furtherance of the gospel. We can all do it in varied ways. But when you do it, Jesus is saying, you invest in eternity. Here's the second principle then. Be faithful with what you have and you will not be disappointed. Jesus starts to talk about faithfulness in, in verse 10. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. Yeah, this idea of faithfulness, Jesus is talking about stewardship. You know, the manager in the parable is a steward and we are stewards. Everything, the, the assumption of Jesus is that everything that we have has been given to us, entrusted to us by the living God, not only to enjoy, but to use for his glory. Sometimes Christians, I've, I've, I've heard Christians say this. I've heard them say that they would give more to help spread the gospel if they only had a little more to give. Jesus, Jesus says there's actually an easy way to see what we would do with more by looking at what we do with what we already have. You know, one who is, because one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. Now you see, this, this principle that Jesus is working with has all kinds of real life applications. As a general principle, people who are trustworthy in carrying out small responsibilities can also be trusted with fulfilling larger, bigger responsibilities, so long as it's something they're gifted to do. It's, you know, it's one of the reasons why uh, men pursuing ministry in our denomination are required to, uh, to fulfill uh, a pastoral internship. I think the idea is let's, let's entrust him with a bunch of small responsibilities to see if he's faithful. And should he prove unfaithful, why would we ever think that he would be faithful in the larger responsibility of, of caring for God's people? But you see, it's also true in so many other areas of life. We can apply this to our own context. People who fail to follow through on small commitments do not somehow rise to the occasion when the responsibility is bigger. They're just as irresponsible as always, only the consequences will be worse because people are relying upon them. And so there's, I think, a lesson here about, about character. Uh, character is, is built by little choices we make every day to keep our commitments or to cop out. And Jesus wants his disciples to be faithful in the little things. Faithful in the mundane things. I'll be the first one to say, dear friends, that I could give you a list of failures in small things. And I'm deeply sorry because I know some of those failures have affected you personally. But this is what Jesus is calling us to pursue, what he's calling us after, to be daily faithful in, in the small things. You know, even if what you're doing seems insignificant, do it faithfully for the glory of God. Work 
as hard as uh, <clears throat> you can, even when people aren't watching. Know that God, God sees your acts of faithfulness and as a loving heavenly father takes delight in them. You know, keep your commitments. Be faithful in the details. That's the broad application of that principle. But let's bring it back to material possessions because one, that's the focus of this passage. But two, because Jesus is helping us to understand that what we do with our possessions as a pattern of life will reveal what is really within our hearts. So take a look at verses 11 and 12. He says, if then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, that is worldly possessions, what you have, who will entrust to you the true riches, that is the riches of the kingdom of heaven? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, namely God's, Jesus' assumption is that all that you have, worldly possessions, is not ultimately yours, it's God's. Who will give you that which is your own? That is your inheritance in Christ Jesus. So so true riches that Jesus speaks of here are the treasures of Christ's eternal kingdom. And, And I think the point Jesus is making is that if we are unfaithful with something as small as our worldly possessions, because whether we're rich or poor, In the grand scheme of things, our worldly possessions are a small and insignificant thing. But if we are unfaithful with those, that that insignificant, that small thing, well then it reveals that our heart is, is in the wrong place. And Jesus is saying, be faithful in the here and now so you can receive something even better when the time comes. And friends, what what do we have to look forward to as as followers of Jesus, uh, true riches. Paul speaks about our our inheritance uh, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, heirs of God, heirs of the world, co-heirs with Jesus Christ. He says, "No, no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor heart has conceived what God has in store for those who love him. And that means, dear friends, as followers of Jesus, we can sit loosely with our worldly possessions because we see what's coming and we can live accordingly. So be faithful in what you have and you will not be disappointed. I, uh, this is a complete aside before I go to the third principle, but I thought it was a great question. Um, commentator I was reading this week asked the question, when was the last time you showed your savings account who's boss? <laughs> and just said, I'm going to take some of this money and I'm going to give it to someone in need. Um, be faithful with what you have and you will not be disappointed. Uh, principle number three then. Uh, as we come to the end of this section, Jesus shows us that you can only serve one master. So be sure it's the right one. Uh, He says in verse 13, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Again, mammon. You cannot serve God and the stuff of this world. Jesus, Jesus knows the spiritual power of possessions. And, and you know, we can, we can use what we have for the, for the glory of God or virtually any other idol we choose. 
Um, it, it's so easy for our hearts to be dominated by worldly possessions. But maybe you're thinking, um, it's just a hard thing. I'm, I'm, I'm conflicted on this. I think we all are at times. It's hard to assess where money or worldly possessions is placed on our priority scale. I just want to read something to you. I, know, I don't normally read things to you, but I thought this was really helpful from Alistair Begg in a book he wrote called Made for His Pleasure. He, he gives these guidelines for assessing wor- where worldly possessions ends up on our priority scale. Listen to these. Number one, money is in the wrong place when thoughts of it consumes your day. Two, when the success of others makes you jealous. Three, when you define success in terms of what you have on earth and instead of what you have in Christ. Four, when your family is neglected in the pursuit of possessions or recognition. Five, when you close your eyes to the genuine needs of others. Six, when you live with the, para- the paralyzing fear of losing your possessions. Seven, when you're prepared to borrow yourself into enslaving debt. And then finally, number eight, when God gets your leftovers rather than your first fruits. Now, please, please notice in these verses that what Jesus says here is uncompromisingly binary. There, there is no third category in what Jesus says. You will serve God or something else. But you see, in, in our sinfulness, we would, we would like, we would prefer the very thing Jesus says is impossible to serve God and money and worldly possessions. If, if only we could serve God with some of what we have and then enjoy the rest for ourselves. You know, I, I was, this is, I think, a challenging passage, so I might as well lay my own sins on the table. And I was convicted by this, and I, and I, I found a, a way that I think I've gone wrong in my thinking. And uh, I'll confess it to you. You know, here's, here's how it's worked in, in the Havener home. Uh, Kelsey and Jared have, uh, have, a, have a budget. We try to. And from what we receive on a, on a monthly basis, what we, what we give comes off the top. We you know, we, we know what we're going to give at the start of the month. No questions asked. That's what goes. You might say, well, that's actually, I mean, that sounds pretty commendable, Jared. But I, you know what subtly begins to happen, in, in, at least in my own heart, in my own mind? Okay, I've given my portion to God. Now the rest is mine to do whatever I please. And Jesus is saying, that's, that's not how it works for my disciples. First, you have to surrender everything to him. Now, of course, Jesus is not saying that it's wrong to spend money on yourself or your loved ones. It's not wrong to be wealthy. But he's saying that absolutely everything that we have been given must be surrendered to God first in order that it might be used the way that he wants to use it in our lives. And so some of you might be making a budget for 2019. I wonder, if, I wonder if you find this as convicting as I do. If so, isn't it, isn't it wonderful that in the providence of God, we come to this passage on the last Sunday of 2018? 
as we look forward to a, a, another year? Do, do, you need to, do you need to reassess your priorities at the start of a new year? You know, some of you, here's what I would encourage you to do if you do make a budget. I think that's wise. Ask yourself the question when you're doing it. What is it that should and does actually take priority with my, with my possessions, my, my giving, my budget? Does, as Alistair Begg put it, does God get the first fruits or the leftovers? Uh, I came across the statistic this week. Frankly, it took my breath away. Um, the statistic was that the average evangelical Christian in America today gives 2% of their income to their local church. 2%. Now, I'm not a percentage guy. I, I, I personally don't believe that 10% is a requirement placed upon New Testament Christians. If anything, give more. But it's a, help, it's a helpful guideline and if evangelical Christians are only giving 2%, think of it, well, think of it positively. Imagine the gospel works that could be initiated. Imagine the gospel works that could be sustained. Imagine the gospel works that could be expanded if Christians gave more joyfully and generously. The reality is, dear friends, uh, you know, we're living in the Western world in the 21st century in America, and we are among the wealthiest Christians in the history of the world. And the question Jesus is posing to us with all the wealth, you might not feel wealthy, but the fact of the reality is, in the grand scheme of things, you are. And the question Jesus is posing to us today is, is it, is it going to be God or is it going to be worldly possessions? You can only have one master. Who, whom will you serve? Now, I, 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 want to, I want to say this, that, well, don't, don't you want that master to be the God-man? Don't, don't you want it to be the Lord Jesus Christ? I, I know the answer to that question. If, if you are a true believer in your heart of hearts, though there might be conflicts raging within your heart, in your heart of hearts, what you want more than anything else is for your life and everything that you have to be surrendered to him. So my friends, today I want to encourage you to remember, remember the riches that our Savior left behind to, to be our Savior. Remember his, his own great expense and giving his, his life for you upon the cross. Remember, remember the the riches and the inheritance that he has secured for you and one day will give to you. And, and believe, this is maybe the sticking point for some of us today, believe that Jesus has your best interest at heart when he tells you openly and honestly, don't waste your life. You need to understand Jesus is not trying to rob you of joy. He's trying to give you real joy that can never be lost or taken away. So let's, let's serve our Lord and our Master and our God and use everything God has entrusted to us in service to him. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we... Uh, we thank you for this parable which challenges us right where we need it.
And uh, we pray that you would help us to use our worldly possessions for eternity. Uh, Lord, we, we pray that you would strengthen us to be faithful in small things. And we ask that you would claim our hearts, that we would be wholly devoted to serving and living for you. We pray this in your name. Amen.